All right. Um, I want to express my appreciation for the church for gathering under, you know, these continuing difficult and adverse circumstances. Um, here at the park, for those of you at home, <laughs> you should see everyone is huddled, uh, trying to bundled up, trying to be warm. And so I'm glad you guys can make it. And also for those of you at home, thank you for continuing to persevere through all the technical difficulties and joining the worship service online. So we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And um, last week, if you remember, Pastor John, he preached on the end of John 19 and the crucifixion of Jesus. And what would happen ordinarily is that since Jesus was condemned as a criminal, his body would be tossed into an open pit, uh, into a mass grave. But what happens, if you remember from the text, is that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had high social standing, uh, in fact, Mark tells us that they were members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they go to Pilate and they ask for Jesus' body so that they could give it a proper burial which was very important in um, that culture because the idea that a body, Jesus' body, would be left out in the open, exposed to decay, was just unbearably shameful. And so they hastily wrap his body in strips of linen. They're rushing because it's almost sundown when the Jewish Sabbath begins. And then they adorn the body with spices, as is the custom, uh, because of the smell, because of the decay. And then they place the body in a tomb cut into the stone, which would have been a very expensive tomb. In fact, uh, Matthew tells us that this is Joseph of Arimathea's own personal tomb. And then they seal it with a stone, and then they leave. And then the narrative skips from that Friday, which is the day of Jesus' death, to the third day, which is Sunday. And the intervening Saturday, which is the second day, is left entirely unremarked. In fact, none of the four Gospels tells us anything about what happened on that Saturday. It doesn't tell us what the disciples were doing, what they were going through, how they were feeling because it was obvious. In order to understand the meaning of the resurrection, you have to understand what the crucifixion meant. And it meant that Jesus was a fraud. Because a crucified Messiah is no Messiah at all. He's a failed Messiah. Because Roman crucifixion meant defeat not death, not victory. And so it meant that Jesus was a fraud. It meant that he was a liar. And it discredited everything, everything he ever said, everything he ever did. And so the disciples were not just depressed that their master had died. They were in a state of absolute shock. Because it meant that this whole kingdom of God project that they thought that they were on, 
that Jesus had instructed them so much about, that whole project was a lie. And so that's what the disciples were grappling with. And then you have the third day. And on the third day, you have the resurrection. And the resurrection dramatically reversed the verdict of the Roman cross. And it declared that Jesus is king, that he is the Lord of all creation. And therefore, everything depends on the resurrection. This is what we read in the call to worship in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us, if the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is in vain. Then Christianity, this whole thing is meaningless and there's no point to it. So with that in mind, let's read the text. I, uh, I didn't bring a, a warm jacket because I thought I would warm up as I'm preaching, but I'm, I'm shivering. <laughs> but let me read to you John chapter 20. Um, I'll read to you uh, verses 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, so let me just pause there really quickly. This was mentioned also in the catechism question. All four Gospels are very careful to document that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week which is Sunday. And so this is why we call this the Lord's Day. This is the Christian Sabbath. Okay, so this is why we gather together in worship, not on the Jewish Sabbath, which would be Saturday, but on Sunday. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let me just pause here very quickly again. The reason why she's coming to the tomb on the very first day after the Jewish Sabbath is that she wants to go and wash Jesus's body and uh, give it, you know, adorn it and give it, you know, loving treatment because it was so hastily done by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So she discovers, so she saw that the stone was taken away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of God. So here's my outline. You'll notice that there are three figures in the story. There's Mary, there's Peter, and then there's John. And so I'm going to examine each of their stories. And uh, so here are my points. Number one, we're going to look at Mary and we're going to look at the broader issue of women in the church. Number two, we're going to look at Peter and the evidence of the resurrection. And then number three, we're going to look at John and his call to us to believe. 
So let's begin. Number one, Mary Magdalene. Um, you'll, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that there are actually several Marys um, in Jesus's life among his followers. It was a very common name among Palestinian Jews in the first century. And the way you distinguish all the different Marys is that you designate them you know, either by their husband or who they are the mother of or where they are from. And so this Mary is the Magdalene because she is from the town of Magdala, which was a fishing town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And Mary Magdalene is a very important figure in the Gospels. She is cited by name 12 times in the Gospels more than any of the other, more than any of the, uh, the 12 disciples, with the exception of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so she's a very significant and important follower of Jesus. And she plays a pivotal role as the first and primary eyewitness to the resurrection. All four Gospels document her role and the important role of women as eyewitnesses. Because if you read the other accounts, Mary Magdalene is accompanied by other women. This is why when she goes to the disciples, she says, what we saw, right? And if you read the other Gospel accounts, there were at least four other women. There was Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Salome. But in all of these lists of women, Mary Magdalene is always named first. Just like Peter is always named first among the twelve disciples, which shows you her prominence. And in our text, John focuses just on Mary. She's the only one there, even though there were other women present. And then next week, we're going to look at the passage where she meets the risen Lord. And we're going to look at that in much more detail. Uh, Pastor Wade is actually going to preach on that passage. I'm a little bit jealous of Wade because it's such a beautiful, fantastic passage. Um, I love Mary Magdalene, but uh, I'm not going to talk about her because I don't want to steal his thunder. But here I want to talk about the broader role of women in the Bible. Because I want you to know that it is not incidental that Mary happens to be a woman. Jesus intentionally and purposefully chose Mary for this pivotal role. And I want you to understand how remarkable this is. Because in the ancient world, you have to understand, both in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world, women were denigrated. This is abundantly clear if you read uh, the classical literature of the day, or if you read the rabbinic literature, women were depersonalized, women were either depersonalized as objects of sexual desire, or they were reduced to vessels to bear children. But women were not considered to be equal to men in intellectual and moral stature. And this is just a fact. We have a a mountain of manuscript data testifying to to this case. 
And here let me um, make a small aside, uh, an apologetics aside. I want you to know that this was considered to be a considerable strike against early Christianity. The fact that the pivotal eyewitnesses were all women. Because in the ancient world, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses. In fact, by law, they couldn't testify in court. And so if you're going to make up a story, right, if the resurrection account is just made up out of whole cloth centuries later in order to convince people, then why would you put women at the center of it? If you're going to make up the story, you would put Peter or some other strong, burly men as the primary and foundational eyewitnesses Why would you, from the very beginning, bias the story so that it would be received with enormous skepticism and mockery, which in fact it was? Why would you do that unless unless it actually happened? And that's what the facts were the case. And so historians and scholars, they will tell you, you know, they've looked at this and they will say that this is very powerful evidence that this account is historically reliable. The very fact that women are at the center of this story. But let me return to my point. Let me talk about the role of women in Christianity. I want you to know, I want you to know, it is not just a historical accident that women were the first eyewitnesses. I want you to know they were chosen. This is abundantly clear in the next passage when we look at Mary Magdalene. He chose her. He chose them. And the reason why is because if you read the gospel accounts, at every turn, at every step, Jesus boldly affirmed the value and the significance of women. In, Jewish, in a Jewish culture that strongly disapproved of talking to women who were not your blood relatives, Jesus freely spoke with women, often in public, to the astonishment of both the crowds and the women themselves. You remember, you'll remember the story in John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman at the well. She could not believe, she was flabbergasted that a rabbi of all people who would maintain these strict social rules, a rabbi would speak to her in public, in the open. In a world in which female learning was disparaged and treated with suspicion, Jesus taught and discipled women. You'll remember the story in Luke 10 of Mary, the sister of Martha, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. And Jesus did not rebuke her. He did not tell her, return to the kitchen um, where you belong, but he commended her. He praised her for doing the better thing. And so you have story upon story of Jesus showing enormous care and attention to women. Michael Kruger, who is a uh, prominent scholar of early Christianity, he says that the sheer volume of these stories has no parallel in the ancient world. Not only did Jesus minister to women, but he allowed women to minister to him. Women financially supported Jesus' ministry. 
he received their hospitality. He was anointed by them. And all of these things are not hidden in the background as uncomfortable truths, but these stories are highlighted and placed at the forefront of Jesus' ministry. And so you have all of these interactions where Jesus treated women with dignity. He just assumed their value. This was radical in the ancient world. This was scandalous because it violated the social and moral norms of the day. And the early church carried on this practice. When you read the epistles, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, particularly the epistles of Paul, at the end of his epistles, he always greets the people in the church, the the prominent and important figures of that church. And in those list of names, there are always numerous women. So just to give you an example, if you read Romans chapter 16, there are 27 names. Ten of those names are women. That's 37%. Furthermore, in the early church, women's sexuality was protected. In the ancient world, a male-dominated world where vulnerable women were preyed upon, the early church affirmed sexual chastity and fidelity, which protected women. The early church valued female infants. Uh, The practice of infanticide was widely done in the ancient world. Uh, Infanticide is where you dispose of unwanted children, unwanted infants, which is basically the ancient world's uh, version of abortion. And the vast majority of infants that were discarded were female infants because they were not considered to be valuable. We have numerous stories from the ancient world of deaconesses in the church just going around the garbage heap where these babies would be abandoned to die. And they would pick up these babies, most of whom were little girls. They would bring them back to the church and then the families of the church would adopt these babies and raise them as their own. And so for all of these reasons, women poured into the church. Scholars who have looked at you know, statistical data from the catacombs and so forth estimate that there's about 60% of the early church consisted of women, which was vastly disproportionate to the population in which only 40% of the population was women for reasons of you know, women often died um, in childbirth and then there was a gender-selective infanticide. By the way... That's still true today, which is that women are overrepresented in religions in general. Men are more attracted to secularism. But among all the world's religions, Christianity has the highest percentage of participation among women. And I think that's a good thing. And yet, even as Jesus was revolutionary in his treatment of women, nevertheless, Nevertheless, Jesus chose only men to be his apostles. He appointed only men in positions of authoritative leadership. So, what do we make of that? I think there are two possible explanations for this. The first possibility is that Jesus wanted to appoint women as apostles. He wanted to do it. That was his intention all along. 
But he couldn't because of the social conventions of the day. He was constrained by a culture that didn't respect women. But if he could appoint apostles today, right now, he absolutely would appoint women as apostles. He just didn't have the benefit of living in the modern world. I think that explanation is actually a really low view, has a really low view of Jesus. Because basically it's saying he didn't have the courage. He didn't have the moral integrity and fortitude to do what he knew was right. But if you look at the accounts of the Gospels, we see Jesus was constantly breaking social taboos. He ate with tax collectors. He declared all foods clean. He broke the rules of the Sabbath of the, of the, of the, um, of the Pharisees. He redefined the temple. And all these things produced enormous controversy and anger. This is the reason why the religious authorities wanted to kill him. And even knowing that, Jesus was fearless. He always spoke and did what was right. And so this whole idea that Jesus was forced to work within the social parameters of the day is just not true. To the, to the character of Jesus in the Gospels, it's actually a very low view of him. Let me offer to you a second explanation, which is that at every step, Jesus honored women as full image bearers of God. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verses 27? God created them, male and female, he created them. He created humanity to be this complementary pairing. And so Jesus celebrated their gifts. He valued women as partners in ministry. But at the same time, he affirmed the gender roles of the Torah so that in marriage, husbands are the head of their wife. In the church, authoritative leadership is given, is appointed to godly men. Now, I know that in the modern world, this causes enormous consternation. I know. And in our church, there has been a lively conversation and discussion about these matters in the past several months. And I think that's a good thing. I think our church should have open and free dialogue. Nothing should be taboo. We're a church family. We can discuss anything. But I think that the biblical position that I'm arguing for, and this is contested, you know, honest Christians have disagreements about these issues, and that's fine as well. But the biblical position as I understand it, I think is difficult to understand because it doesn't fit in any of the paradigms that we see in the world. Because the Bible is not arguing for traditionalism. You know, in traditionalism, women are inferior to men. And because of their inferiority, they occupy different roles. And at the same time, the Bible is also not modern feminism. And modern feminism says that women cannot have equal value, equal worth to men, unless all the roles are interchangeable. 
Notice, by the way, that in both positions, your role indicates your value, right? What role you occupy tells you about your worth and value. But I think Jesus shows us a third way. And the third way is that men and women have equal value, equal worth as image bearers of God, and they have different and complementary roles. And I know that sounds like a paradox. How can those two things fit together? And I wish I had more time to unpack this and talk about this. Actually, my goal is, because there's so much interest and discussion, um, I want to preach a very short sermon series sometime in the future, near future, on gender roles. The Bible speaks a great deal about it. But let me give you a very brief synopsis. So I think it goes back to the Bible's deep theology of gender. And the theology of gender goes to creation. Because at creation, God created humanity, and he created humanity male and female. That's the essence of who we are. So that... (laughs) So that... Gender is not a social construct. It's not just a social convention that, you know, arises out of culture, but it goes to the core of who we are. It is the essence of who we are as human beings. We are gendered human beings. We are male. We are female. Now, why did God do this? Why did God God create us as this gender binary? And the answer is so that we might image God. It goes to the essence of our image bearing. Because who is God? God is one being and he is three persons. And so you have the Father and you have the Son. And the Father and the Son are both equally God. They have equal worth, equal dignity, equal value. And at the same time, They have different roles. And so in salvation, the Father sends the Son to save the world. And then the Son gladly submits and obeys and he goes to the cross. Now, does the fact that the Son takes the subordinate role, does that diminish him? Does that denigrate his value? No, if you understand the gospel, it is to his glory that the Son has this role. And so in Christianity, it completely subverts and overturns the world's understanding of roles. And so that's what's going on in gender. And the other thing is that gender is a signpost to the gospel because the gospel tells us that Jesus is our husband. He's the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. And so... As gendered human beings, men and women, we each get to play the part of Jesus in this drama of the gospel. Women get to reenact Jesus' role in his submission, in his submissive role, and it is not, it doesn't diminish them, but it is to their glory. And then men get to play the role of Christ, likewise, as servant heads serving and loving and laying down their lives 
for their wives. And so gender is not just something that, you know, we created or something that is just merely biological, but it goes to the essence of reality. But let's get to brass tacks. How do we actually practice gender roles in the church? Because we don't live in the garden anymore. We now live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, gender has become so distorted and twisted by sin. And rather than it being this beautiful complementary partnership, you have in so many cases men who use their strength not to protect and serve women, but to exploit and oppress women. And that's vile. That is evil. And it is a contradiction of the gospel and the image of God. And so how do we, um, how do we redeem gender in a world of so much woundedness and brokenness? I think all of us, to one degree or another, we all come with trauma and and brokenness about gender. And I think the answer is we practice gender roles in the church very carefully. We do it with enormous amount of humility and sensitivity to one another. And I think it's going to require a lot of conversation and dialogue and partnership And let me say, the ultimate answer is Jesus. We need to look at Jesus. How did he treat men and women in his public ministry and in his life? And we need to do likewise. All right, so second point. That's a whole sermon unto itself. But let me go to the second point, which is I want to look at Peter and the evidence for the resurrection. I want you to know that Christianity is unique among the world's religions because it centers on a single historical event, which is the resurrection. And therefore, Christianity is not just a set of moral principles. It's not just a philosophy of life, but it is foundationally, it is fundamentally about Jesus' identity. Is he the Messiah? Is he the savior of the world? Because remember, I said earlier, a crucified Messiah is no Messiah at all unless the resurrection reverses that verdict. So what then is the evidence for the resurrection? And the Bible gives us two primary pieces of evidence. It gives us, first of all, the empty tomb. And then second of all, It gives us eyewitnesses who met, who interacted with the risen Lord. I want you to know that you need both. Because without either, the case falls apart. Because if you only had the empty tomb but no eyewitnesses, well, then the the easiest explanation is somebody must have stolen or moved the, the body, right? There's no one who has seen him risen. On the other hand, if you only have eyewitnesses, but no empty tomb, 
well, then the, the, the most obvious explanation is some kind of mass hallucination, right? Some kind of religious visions because there's a rotting corpse in Jesus' tomb. But if you put them together, you have a very strong case. And furthermore, when you look at the rise of the early church, historians will tell you that the only viable explanation for a Messiah movement in the first century continuing after the Messiah was crucified, the only explanation could be that could be the resurrection. But let's look at that first piece of evidence, which is the empty tomb. And actually, the evidence is not that the tomb was completely empty, but that there was something left inside of it. So, in the account, Mary Magdalene reports that the tomb is empty. And so, Peter and John, they go running to the tomb. And we know that this other disciple in verse 2, the one whom Jesus loved, is John, because at the end of John's gospel, it literally says, I, John, the one whom Jesus loved, wrote down this account. Okay, so this is John. So what happens is, John gets to the tomb first. And I think this is a wonderful example that this story, this account comes from living memory. Because if this was merely a, a myth or a legend, you would expect all the details to you know, be symbolic or have some kind of other purpose. If that is the case, then what is the meaning of John arriving first? If you read the commentaries, they will all tell you John arriving first has no theological point. There's no symbolic meaning or purpose behind it. It was written down simply because it was remembered. And I love this little detail. It's, I think, a wonderful human moment. Because John is writing this decades afterwards, probably in his old age, He's reflecting on, he's remembering the, the single greatest day in human history. And he can't help himself but to devote a couple of words to note that he used to be faster than Peter. I love that. All right. So John arrives at the tomb first. Let the record show. But it's Peter who enters the tomb. And what Peter saw astonished him. In verse 6, it says he saw, but the Greek word that's used there is not the ordinary word that you would use uh, for seeing, like, you know, when light hits your eyes. That's actually the word in verse 5, which is the Greek word blepo. It just means to see. But the word in verse 6, the moment I tell you this word, you're going to get a sense of its meaning. The Greek word is Theoreo. And theoreo doesn't just mean to look. It means to ponder. It means to scrutinize. It means to see and then furiously think about what it is that you're seeing. So what did Peter see that required an explanation? John tells us at the end of verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. 
the word lying doesn't just mean lying. It actually means to be situated, right? It was lying in an orderly way. In other words, the linen strips were lying there, still wrapped in place. They were still arranged in the same way as when they were wrapped around Jesus' body. Do you understand? And then in verse 7, it says that Peter saw the face cloth. This is the head wrappings. And in verse 7, it says that it was not lying with the rest of the linen cloths, but it was folded up in a place by itself. So this head cloth is a separate set of linen strips that you would use to wrap around the head, leaving a small, uh, uh, small part of the face exposed. And rather than it being tossed on the ground or strewn about on the stone table, just like the rest of the linen cloths for the body, it was still in its place, folded up on its own. Do you understand? So let's analyze this, all right? Let's theoreo. What accounts for this? What accounts for this? If someone had stolen or moved the body as Mary had first reported, why would you remove the grave clothes? Remember, this is now the third day. Jesus' body had been brutalized and severely bloodied. And so if you're going to transport the body, why would you unwrap it? Why would you carry what would have been at that point an oozing cadaver in advanced decay. It makes no sense. And if you're going to remove the linen linen strips, if you're going to remove them, why would you spend all the time and energy to meticulously put them back in order? You would expect the linen strips to be haphazardly tossed aside. Instead, the way that the linen strips are discovered, it looked as if, it looked as if Jesus' body had just miraculously passed through them, leaving them in place. And so in the tomb, Peter is staring and he's staring, trying to understand, trying to figure out what it is that he's seeing. That's the evidence of the empty tomb. I want you to know it's not just the empty tomb. But in the next passage, Mary meets the risen Lord. And then Jesus appears before his disciples. And then last of all, he appears to Thomas. And to Thomas, remember the story, Thomas puts his fingers in the wounds of Jesus' hands and feet and, and, uh, and sides. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us, <laughs> is it just the same motorcycle back going back and forth? Um, and then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that for the next 40 days, Jesus was with his disciples, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, talking and teaching them. Paul tells us in fact that at one, at one time, Jesus showed himself to 500 people, men and women. And then Paul goes on to say 
many of whom are still alive, right? This is, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years after the fact. He says, they're still living. (laughs) They're still around. Go and talk to them. Ask them what they saw. So that's the evidence. That's the case for the resurrection. Let me go to the third point, the call to believe. I want to look at John's story. So John arrives at the tomb first, but it is Peter who goes in. And in the tomb, Peter is staring and he's staring, he's trying to understand. And then John goes in and John sees the same evidence. And then in verse 8, it says, he saw and believed. And I think John was remembering what Jesus had taught so many times before. So for example, you have Mark chapter 9, verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. Jesus said, right? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And if you go on to read the text, it says that the disciples... They didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but they were too afraid to ask. But John here is finally beginning to understand. He's finally beginning to believe. I want you to know that the resurrection is not just an inert fact of history, but it makes a claim on your life because it's a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, wrote this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. And so because of the resurrection, hear me now, Jesus is Lord. Do you believe this? Do you accept His claim on your life? Or do you reject it? You have to choose. There's no neutral ground. You know what I find very interesting is that there were actually two sets of people who saw the empty tomb. If you read Matthew's account, he tells us that the Sanhedrin actually posted guards at the tomb. Because they also remember Jesus saying that on the third day he would rise. And so they go to Pilate and they say, you know, the disciples may try to perpetuate a hoax and steal the body. And so they ask Pilate to station guards. But then do you know what happens? In Matthew 28, at dawn on the third day, there was an earthquake. And then an angel of the Lord comes and he rolls back the stone. And the text tells us that the the Roman soldiers were paralyzed with fear and they became like dead men. And then Matthew tells us something very interesting. He says that the guards returned back to the city and they reported everything that they saw to the chief priests. And the chief priests gave the soldiers sufficient money and told them, to tell the people that the disciples had come at night and they stole the body. And then Matthew goes on to say that that story 
that alternate explanation was still circulating among the Jewish people to that day, which is the time when Matthew wrote the gospel first in the first century. Before, um, before I move on, I just want to make a quick comment on this counter theory. The problem with the whole theory, which is that the disciples stole the body, is how does a fraud, which, which is what it would be, right? How does a, how does a hoax so completely transform the disciples so that they're no longer afraid and cowering in fear, but suddenly they have this incredible boldness and energy and they go on throughout the Mediterranean world boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how did it give them that kind of energy and transformation? And then furthermore, why would they be willing to suffer, to be tortured, and then ultimately to die for what they knew to be a lie? It doesn't make any sense. But let me go on. What I want to do is I want to focus on the fact that the soldiers, this is incredible to me, the Roman soldiers saw the empty tomb. They witnessed with their own eyes this miraculous event. They saw an angel of the Lord. But instead of believing, instead of giving their lives to Jesus, they took the money. So that it was not a lack of evidence that they did not believe. They had all the evidence evidence they needed. But something else came into their life. Something that was more powerful, more beautiful and real than the risen Christ. What is faith? Faith is not just believing a set of facts. You know, I've talked to so many people who say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. But there's no power in their life. That belief doesn't change them. It doesn't transform them. I want you to know that if you believe Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, that means He is Lord. That means you owe Him your life because He died for you. That means you have to center your whole life on Him. You can't just give Him part of your life. You can't just dedicate sections and segments of your life. Your whole life belongs to Him. It means that you have to restructure your whole purpose and your meaning on Him. No half measures. Otherwise, if you just carry on as usual, if you just act like there's no difference, you know what you're doing? You're just taking the money. Some of you are literally just taking the money. And something else has come into your life that is more important than the risen Christ. I want to challenge you today. today. Do you believe? Do you believe He's risen? Is that belief evident in your life? I want to close by reading to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Decades later, the Apostle Peter sat down and he wrote an epistle. 
And in the opening words of his epistle, this is what he wrote. God has called, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, through the resurrection, we are born again. That means we have a new life. We have a new heart because of the Spirit. And we are given a living hope, a new purpose, a new reason, a new dynamism for living so that we live these resurrection-shaped lives. It must be so. Otherwise, it's not belief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that the world, that though we as human beings have turned away from you and rebelled against you, you did not leave us alone to stew in our juices, to reap the consequences of sin and evil. But you sent us your Son. You gave us a Savior. And on the cross, he died the death we should have lived. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And through the resurrection, he is vindicated. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. We pray that this would be a living, breathing faith in our lives. Make us a resurrection people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.